Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everybody. Uh, this is Podside Picnic. Uh, welcome back. And we're going to be talking to you about John Scalzi's Old Man War. It's, uh, it's a story I've read quite a few times. It's about uh, a man in his 70s who is given the opportunity to join it, well, to get his youth back, to be transferred to a young body in exchange for fighting in the Earth's Endless wars with other species. Uh, so, uh, uh, Connor, uh, first time reading, what'd you think? Well, I have so many thoughts. Uh, we're going to be bouncing all over the place. We're going to be talking a lot about imperialism, for instance. Uh, this is another space war and therefore space empire story. I think to kick things off, though, you know, I, I, I'm conflicted about this book, and I think Pete is too. Yes. So what I'm going to do is... I'm going to read a passage that I liked from it that shows you what I like about it and a passage that I didn't like as much and explain a little bit what I'm getting at here. So uh, to talk about what I did like, I'm going to pull it up here. As a side note, guys, I'm very interested in this because Connor has played his feelings about this book fairly close to his chest beyond saying that they were complicated. Yeah, I mean, all right. So, a passage that I liked. I would just start with the opening of the book. This is page one. I did two things on my 75th birthday. I visited my wife's grave, then I joined the army. Visiting Kathy's grave was the less dramatic of the two. She's buried in Harris Creek Cemetery, not more than a mile down the road from where I live and where we raised our family. Getting her into the cemetery was more difficult than perhaps it should have been. Neither of us expected needing the burial, so neither of us made the arrangements. It's somewhat mortifying, to use a rather apt word, to have to argue with a cemetery manager about your wife not having made a reservation to be buried. <laughs> Eventually, my son, Charlie, who happens to be mayor, cracked a few heads and got the plot. Being the father of the mayor has its advantages. So the grave, simple and unremarkable, with one of those small markers instead of a big headstone. As a contrast, Kathy lies next to Sandra Kane whose rather overstated headstone is a polished black granite with Sandy's high school photo and some maudlin quote from Keats about the death of youth and beauty sandblasted into the front. That's Sandy all over. It would have amused Kathy to know that Sandra was parked next to her with her big dramatic headstone. All their lives, Sandy nurtured an entertainingly passive-aggressive competition with her. Kathy would come to the local bake sale with a pie. Sandy would bring three and simmer, not so subtly, if Kathy's pie sold first. Kathy would attempt to solve the problem by preemptively buying one of Sandy's pies. It's hard to say whether this actually made things better or worse from Sandy's point of view. All right, so why did I start there? I think that one of the things I really enjoy about Scalzi, he's very much a dadcore Midwesterner uh, of the same generation. He's a little bit younger than my parents, but um, 
I think I recognize in him a lot of things from them. Um, you know, I, this is a funny comparison to make. He's another like facial haired Midwestern dad core type from Ohio who reminds me therefore of Bill Watterson, the Calvin and Hobbes guy. And there's a nice, uh, there's a nice sort of pleasant small town wit to him that I think you're seeing in this opening anecdote talking about visiting his, the wife's grave, which, you know, is, is a departure from most of the book, which is of course about epic space war. But um, there's a sort of very gentle, I think, earned sense of wit there. Uh, there's a certain just sort, a sort of lightness of moving through the story um, that I think I gave you some sense for the feel of it. And I, I, I like Scalzi's voice just generally. I think he has a very pleasant, easy to get along with um, narratorial voice, which is, I'll tell you this, a lot harder to pull off than you may think. It's always the easiest forms of narration in novels that are the hardest to do. He's but very let me relatable. He, he feels like he's talking to you. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Oh, no, no worries. No, he feels like a very relatable, ordinary guy. And part of that is that he came to this uh, partly through blogging. Um, before, you know, he was an early blogger. And still is, I believe, as well as a prolific tweeter. Mm-hmm. And you can see that just ordinary guy narrating out into the ether, but but working on it and practicing it. I think you can feel, in fact, I would say as a writer, what I see there that a lot of people probably won't is if you were trained to be a literary snob, but you're not an experienced writer, you look at that and say, that is just an easy, uh, you know, a, a sort of lower middle brow or low brow kind of uh, easy style. Like the easy is the main concept. It's not. That is that, that, that kind of easy wit and moving through a story with that kind of lightness of touch, that is earned and it's worked for. And I like that in Scoutsy. And he brings that to Space War in an interesting way. Here's where I don't like Scouts. I'm going to skip way ahead in this book. Um, over the halfway point in my copy here. And now we're doing Space War. And what has just happened, it's just some spoilers here, but it turns out that the Earthlings have not comprehended in this world how many alien enemies they have that want to destroy them and destroy Earth and colonize other planets. And one of the races that Scott, that the, the main character has to uh, deal with is a race of mammalians, very similar to humans, but they're all very tiny. They're all about an inch tall. So when you fight them, oh. once you destroy their <laughs> machinery, you step on them, literally. So he's done that. He's been stepping on them, and he's feeling bad about it. This is the this is dialogue from the main character. I think it's, it's called John Perry, right? Yep. Yeah, so John Perry is speaking here. Maybe that's what's bothering me, I said. There's no sense of consequence. I just took a living, thinking thing and hurled it into the side of a building. Doing it didn't bother me at all. The fact that it didn't does bother me, Alan. There ought to be consequences to our actions. We have to acknowledge at least some of the horror of what we do, whether we're doing it for good reasons or not, blah, blah, blah. And here, a few pages later, I think six pages later, he kind of resolves this by giving an anecdote about a woman that he knew in training dying a horrible death. And most people in the Space Marines Force do die a horrible death. Most of his friends from training die within a couple of years. I won't go to detail here, but she, there's something involving other human colonists who are – she's actually strike-breaking, I believe. I think there's a rebelling miners who uh, kill the Colonial Marine in a pretty horrific way involving feeding her to like a scavenger. And this is meant to be a way of resolving his fear about not being human enough after doing all this brutal killing. He says, Susan's death was clarifying to me, a reminder that humans can be as inhuman as any alien species. If I had been on the Tucson, I could see myself feeding one of the bastards who killed Susan to the gapers and not feeling in the least bit bad about it. I don't know if this made me better or worse than what I had feared I was becoming when we battled the Kovandu, the one-inch-tall people. 
but I no longer worried about it making me any less human than before. So I'm actually going to ignore the triteness of saying, you know, of him basically saying humans are inhuman too, uh, you know, and ordinary people are like that as well, not just the space marines, whatever. Okay, trite, well, who cares? I think what bothers me is this is an immensely glib way uh, to talk about war, to pretend that you're confronting the weight of war and empire and violence and then to hand wave it away like that in a neat way and move on with your space war story is, it felt cheap. And I think Scalzi is frankly capable of doing better. And I've been monologuing for a while, but you have a sense now of, I think he's earned his way into his easy, witty, charming voice. I think he's a very imaginative guy and he's, he's very good at structuring a story in a, in a conventional way. And what I don't like about him, I think that there are moments where he's glib and cheap and trades on his own warmth to get away with some stuff. I will stop monologuing and cast it over to Pete here. Okay, I was just going to say, though, find a moment where he doesn't do that in this book. What do you mean? I mean, this whole book is a defense of the indefensible. Like, ultimately, we're going to be having a discussion here about writing and the quality of writing and how it holds together and that. And that's important, but it's very difficult for me to get past the fact that here is a guy going through a discussion about war, and he's like, trust the process, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe I'm murdering strike breakers. Maybe I'm killing perfectly innocent aliens, but I'm doing it for the greater good. It's revolting. Well, I actually, so, can I say, Pete, uh, I may disagree to an extent just because I think you've read this book a lot, and from the time you first read it until now, you've probably gone through a number of political metamorphoses, at least one, right? Oh, yeah, that's very fair. Like, I didn't have any of these complaints at all when I first read the book. Right, so I totally hear you. I'm not totally sure that this, that, that this outrightly defends the space empire in quite the way you mean, because at least this first book is mostly about getting this character underway. And there are sequels, which I have not read, and we'll get into that. Um, And a lot of it ultimately does end up about being a a, a sci-fi love story about him, uh, spoiler alert, kind of re-encountering an incarnation of his dead wife in the Space Marines. And there's a whole mechanism about how that works. Um, I totally hear you. I get why you see it that way. I, I don't necessarily know that it's comprehensively. I guess the distinction I have to make is I don't know if it's comprehensively a defense of the indefensible so much as it is a glib hand-waving away of the real core questions here about empire and about war. I just don't think Scalzi in this book, I think he's punting. I don't think he's taking a serious moral, uh, he's not giving them a serious treatment at all, I would say, one way or another. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know necessarily that it makes it better, but uh, I, I, I do hear what you're saying. It's like, he, he, is not, he is not consciously saying the Empire is good, is what you're saying. It's just in the background. Yeah, it's a deeply unserious book, and I think that's one reason I found it charming. I bought it at the airport when I was on my way to Canada, and I read it on the way there and on the way back, and boy, is this a good airport novel. Um, you know, I don't think this is, I think this is mostly in many ways, I think at times it's a more intelligent book than it probably gets credit for being. It's not just schlocky airport trash. Um, he has thought through some of the cliches about like military training and deployment. Like he's, he's certainly done his homework and has read people like Joe Haldeman, who we're going to get to eventually and seen movies like aliens. And he's thought about the cliches, not just sci-fi movies, but full metal jacket and apocalypse now and all those war classics and stuff. Um, and I think a lot of I think a lot of thought and care went into this. I just don't think it functioned at the level of how am I going to give a serious treatment to war and imperialism? And I have a theory about why that is. And 
folks, I'm just going to tease it by saying this book came out in 2005. Uh, tell me, you know, if you can, why do we think that this book that came out in 2005 was not willing to look Empire right in the face? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, this, yeah, well, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just go out and say it. Uh, this is, this is a book from the height of the Iraq war when, in my opinion, as someone who lived through it and was young at the time, but lived through it. Mass culture was doing a horrific job of seriously confronting what was going on in the United States and in our foreign policy. Um, it's caught up a little bit, frankly, but I mean, it, th- that was just a horrific period for like, are we going to seriously ask what imperial war means? Uh, and are we going to have, we're going to come down one way or another on it? There was certainly a lot of stuff out there that was lauding it. And certainly there was dissent, but I mean, I, I feel like this, this unfortunate, this book is unfortunately in the, in the, will be enshrined forever as a book that came out at the height of the Iraq War and became canonical. But despite being about empire and war, was not at all serious about its own moment, which is a serious contrast, by the way, to Joe Haldeman, who was writing about Vietnam as the war was ending or wrapping up and speaking as a vet. And his book, which I didn't even like as much, is way more serious about war and imperialism than this is. Is that fair to say, Pete? Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I think The Forever War is a better book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, they're both interesting books. I, mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed the Scalzi more. I so here's the thing: I think that Scalzi's a tighter, in many ways, at least based on those comparing those two books. I think Scalzi's a better writer, to be oh, frank yeah. with you. I, I don't think that Haldeman, in that first book at least, was especially great. I think that book has a lot of flaws, and we'll get to those flaws. I've been talking a whole lot here, Pete. Um, well, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please, can you please just give me your spiel on? why you're so against this book now and why it's changed for you to the point where you dislike it so much now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Part of it is, um, some of it isn't fair. Like, what I know about John Scalzi is that he, um, he woke up one day and he's like, I would like to write a science fiction book and have it sell well. So I'm going to do some market research, and it looks like military science fiction is the sweet spot of where I could put a book. And he sort of focus grouped and market tested and designed a book that he kind of thought people would like at at a point where uh, uh, we were at war. And I, uh, I consider him a good writer. Insofar as I can tell by reading about him, I consider him a good person, but I do not consider this a good book on moral grounds. Um, it it feels it feels like an easy and relatively cheap defense of military involvement when I don't think there there can be such a defense. Um, I also feel. Like when I'm reading a book about war and I'm looking up and I'm like, you know, oh, my God, what I'm reading right here is Gulliver's Travels. It's like a series of weird type of creature encounters that are metaphors for a larger political situation. I, it didn't uh, it didn't really sit right with me. that is all very fair. And I guess to give folks some context here, um, you know, we've talked about Leguin. We talked about Gibson's. We've talked about some of the big movements within both of our lifetimes in science fiction. Um, is this new wave like Le Guin? Is it cyberpunk like Gibson? Is it something else? How do you categorize this book in a movement? No idea. Well, Pete, uh, you're supposed to know these things, man. <laughs> how, can, how can you not know? Come okay. On. Um, it's, 
Let me try. Let, I'm gonna. Ha- I'm gonna try and creep up on this thought to do it right. So, like, uh, once a time, uh, once upon a time, there was an artistic movement called modernism, and it was eventually supplanted by a an anti movement that called itself postmodernism. And j- linguistically, you put yourself up a tree when you play games like that. What what do you call what's after postmodernism? Post postmodernism? Does the cycle come around? Or do we call it primitivism? It's hey, sort of ridiculous. I want you to go on, but I will say that my agent has accused me of practicing post postmodernism in my own work. So I guess we do call it that. <laughs> Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> but keep going, keep going. So we're we're at a time right now where um, uh, we we're in an era that has not defined itself in a number of ways, and one of those ways is artistically. The last really dominant major sci-fi movement was cyberpunk. And we are in the middle of something else. I mean, my God, I hope we're in the middle of something else. Cyberpunk has to be replaced, but I don't know what that thing is. And you'll hear people like desperately flailing, trying to create a a name for the new now, but they haven't gotten it yet. Like uh, online, I've been hearing talk about hope punk. Uh, That's nonsense. We're definitely not in hope punk land because Hope punk would apply optimism in the current thrust of writing, and it's not there. It's yeah, the it's good, very, <laughs> yeah. the good Go stuff ahead. is generally not hope punky. I think is fair to say. Also, hope punk is a nonsense concept. Uh, but that that I, I want to ask you this: uh, if we're not going to categorize this, but we know what influences it, you know, obviously Haldeman. He mentions uh, Scalzi himself mentions Heinlein in the afterwards. We've already talked about some uh, at least one Space Marine movie, that being Aliens. Mm-hmm. We've all played Halo. So is this just a, a pure nostalgia grab? Is this just a nostalgia play by Scalzi? It, you know, it's tough because, like, while I'm very frustrated with Scalzi about this novel— um, it's a complex novel. He made a good foundation to build on later. Like he is a serious artistic heir of previous science fiction writers. Like he he matters in the genre, and what he's doing matters. But um, I, it's not quite coalesced yet. I will say that uh, one of the biggest things going on right now is the pendulum has swung back. Like when we were talking about the Golden Age writers, what we were talking about more than anything is what does a just empire look like? What does a good empire look like? When we go out there and teach the natives and show them how to make circuit boards, what, where, where's, where's the right side of that? And New Age showed up and vomited over the whole idea that that question could have a coherent answer. Cyberpunk ignored it completely and said, well, whatever's going to happen, we're all stuck with it and everybody's going to scramble for jobs, so let's focus on that. This new thing is talking about empire again. This new thing is talking about violence again. And that is kind of where we're at. Um, I... Now, we have a lot of potential fans out there that are going to be talking about other things. They're going to be like, well, you know, Pete, what about 
uh, weird fiction. Weird fiction is a coherent movement, and it's out there. You haven't mentioned it at all. And it's like, well, yes, that's true, but it's not quite science fiction. Weird fiction is its own special, beautiful thing that is a branch that goes off of the tree. It's not a part of the main line. The main line is at war with itself right now, and it's at war with itself over war. And I don't know where it's going to go. That's really interesting. And I feel like we'd have to drag in a lot of stuff we haven't, I haven't read, you've read, mm-hmm. to have a coherent conversation about that. But I feel like we're talking about this a lot because I guess the line I would say is, the ghosts that haunt science fiction, as far as I can tell, more so than capitalism itself and more so than the actual science the genre is named after, is empire, is the practice of imperialism, both as it's done in the real world throughout history and then turned into allegories in science fiction, and then imagining what imperialism looks like as you get out into space and you think about encountering different species. Um, and as you said, just empire versus bad empire, uh, we can all think of a million a million uh, concepts immediately to mind from the, the Federation and Star Trek to the Galactic Empire in, in Star Wars, which is a good versus bad in theory, right? But, like, okay, I, I really think the more I read, the more science fiction is like, you know, capitalism is just one, one blip in history for a few centuries. But ever since human beings have had agriculture and have been able to organize big armies and administrative uh, fiefdoms, they've tried to build empires. And it seems like science fiction really thinks we're pretty much stuck with that, especially when it comes to coming into contact with hostile sentient species that can compete with us technologically and stuff. Is this all fair, do you think? Uh, okay. Uh, are you saying is it fair that science fiction believes this or is – Oh, no. I'm saying – do you think my analysis is right? Yes. Um, in fact, I've got to give you credit. A lot of the things I've been saying have been based upon what I've thought all along that have sort of – conversations with you. I mean, like, it's, it's been like a magic eye for me dealing with modern science fiction because I, I'm subsumed in it. I'm there all the time. And my conversations with you, I've been like, oh, my God, this is really, really about empire. And I don't think I'd have made that leap if we hadn't have been having these ongoing conversations. Come well, on. I'm very flattered to hear that, first of all. And I may be skewing things a little bit just because – it's on my mind a lot, and my own work touches on what the practice of imperialism and state violence means. Um, and I, I also spend too much time on Twitter getting mild, mired down in, <laughs> well, a conversation about imperialism, but also on Twitter, we talk, you know, the C word, capitalism. And of course, science fiction is interested in capitalism. But what I think is so great about science fiction is because it zooms back and forth in time so much, and because you don't have to be bound to historical reality. You don't have to assume. Science fiction, there, there's a great Frederick Jameson line that applies to a lot of mass culture very aptly. And he, and he basically says, um, or I should, Trevor kill me. Jameson attributes this to somewhere else that he can't remember, but he's usually given credit for the line, which is a key part of the line and how it's about repurposing culture. But what Jameson always says is, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And luckily sci-fi does not have that problem because you can just leap because one thing sci-fi does very very often is leaps beyond one version of the end of the world and picks up like 200 years after the world ended right and stuff like that where it's like yeah we can get rid of capitalism at least as we know it or we can have something else or we can still have it whatever but the point is that's not going to be as much of it's not going to be as pressing an issue perhaps or it's going to be a different kind of issue once we run into oh dear a technologically advanced race that wants to destroy us all um, yeah. 
I'd, I'd like to take a weird step sideways for a second, if that's all right with you, Connor. Um, Please do. So, like, in a lot of ways, uh, science fiction is the modern era's myths. Because, like, when you're talking about the Greeks sitting around talking about Athena and Ares, I don't know if we've talked about this in a different episode. It's one of my pet hobby horses. But they aren't talking about a couple of weird gods palling around. What they're talking about is Athena, the goddess of tactics, versus Ares, the god of brutal war. They're, they're having a metaphorical conversation about what war is like. And that is science fiction at its best. We, as a culture, we are not comfortable creating gods and having them do little puppet shows about what the world is. But we're very comfortable doing that with science fiction. Well, what, what does the future hold? What if we try this variation? What, what would happen? That is a big part of what science fiction is, is us reprocessing the now and telling stories to ourselves about what could be or what should be. Yeah. And it's very revealing that the most popular science fiction right now is about empire, that its turn has come again. Yeah, and I... So... And I have, as an aside to that, I, I have something like to say about why is artificial intelligence such a popular uh, topic? And we haven't even done anything that touches on, well, I guess we did Neuromancer, so we did one AI story, but we're going to do a lot more AI-influenced stories, I'm sure. Oh, yes. And I, and I think that the nice thing about AI is it fills exactly that role in a more literal sense, which is AI, you know, it's it's kind of, God, it's either godlike or it's at least supernatural. Uh, and therefore, it's it's like talking about vampires or werewolves would have been back when people believed in those things. Um, you know, there was, there was a time when you told a vampire story and your audience was like, oh, vampires, got to look out for them. And now people are very credulous about AI, even though, folks, there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. It's a metaphorical name. And if we ever do create sentient conscious intelligence, it's probably going to be very far in the future, just, just, just to warn you all. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, I'm digressing here. But I, I want Digressions you to elaborate. They are, they are good. This has been a very digressive episode. To get back to Scalzi, I want to ask you, what has happened since this book came out um, with his work, and how does it fit into what you are describing that's very intriguing to me? You know, what's happening with this debate about empire and war in sci-fi, and how is he a part of it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, nervous about spoiling an entire series of very good books to the audience, but I think to have this discussion on some level, we have to. So... This first book, um, of Old Man's War, I would call it um, uh, science fiction centrism. It's the basic idea that uh, in it, we can't really have what we want. We have to go through a process, and through it, we should achieve at least part of what we need. I mean, that's that's a big part of it. It's like, okay, sure, this uh, you go through this process, you get young, you've got to go murder a bunch of aliens, and that's bad, but it's for the greater good of humanity, so suck it up. Um, that's really interesting. Go ahead. Fu- future books question that harshly. Um, I could be wrong. I haven't read a lot about what John Scalzi says about these books himself because it kind of felt like that would be cheating. That's probably an insane point of view. But the future books involve 
this main character and other characters in the books rebelling against the idea of an empire of man that exterminates other species. It's like he walks away from the premise of this first book. And it makes the other books a lot more readable for me because I'm, I'm, I cannot tell you how viscerally angry this well-written book makes me. But the future books, uh, like John seems to have the same reaction to this book that I am. He, he rejects its premise. Yeah, and I think that's all that I, I want to read him further because I do enjoy Scalzi as a writer and I will revisit him for on that basis. Maybe I'm playing rides. He's again, he's a very good uh, airport author. Well, um, can I drop a recommendation on you? Uh, please do. He writes a book called Red Shirts that is the most fantastic analysis of Star Trek I have ever read in my life. It's a story about a, a group of people who come to realize that they are within a narrative and bound by its rules. Ah, uh, well, that is a topic, not to give away too much, that is near and dear to my heart. But yeah, I would love to read that. That sounds really great. Like, I think Scalzi is a lot of fun. I don't take him quite as seriously as I take Le Guin, for instance. But uh, sure. insofar as genre fiction is meant to be fun and readable, this dude has the goods, folks. So that's one thing I'll say for him. Um, I'll say a lot for him. I, again, I really enjoyed this book, to be clear. I just think that when you dig into it, 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 it doesn't necessarily uh, – it gets less flattering once you dig into it, which is true of so many things. I, I want to ask Pete, though, again, you tease a little bit about the internal debates in sci-fi. So give me some more names and some more points of reference for how Scalzi fits into that and what's going – what is this debate you're referring to in sci-fi? And I'll prompt you a little bit by saying I first heard of Scalzi years before I read him, and I heard of him because when I first started getting into Twitter – it was because uh, I was very riveted by what was going on with Gamergate, which is back oh. in, yeah, late 2014, Gamergate was going on. That's when I met all these people like, you know, Matt Christman and people like that on Twitter. And Scalzi was a very prominent anti-Gamergate voice. And it was that was the first time I saw this kind of SJW versus reactionary divide or whatever it's supposed to be. It's always very, it's always very simplified and stupid, but he was clearly like trying to be an arch SJW or whatever. Um... And that's how I met this guy and saw him fighting with Vox Day on their kind of like arch nemeses of each other and uh, on the timeline. And is that part of what you're talking about or what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's um, I'm going to start ranging wildly and feel free to start roping me back in. OK, so I want you to range free. Go free, Pete. OK, OK, we'll get to Vox Day in a second because his his ongoing war with Scalzi is one of the things I love the most about Scalzi. It's just so endearing. But um, if, if you're looking at this book's place in the science fiction narrative, I want you to imagine a line. And on one end of the line is a, a book called Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. And you've probably seen the movie, and let's be clear, the movie is making fun of the book. The book is very much about uh, humans and possibly Americans' role in the greater world is going out there and exterminating our enemies, and it sucks, but war is hell, son, and there's a lot of explosions. Um, that style of science fiction, that style of military science fiction, is called by its detractors war pornography. The basic idea is people read this because the battles are cool and they like to read about the blood. And There's an, also an older uh, word for that, which is just fascist. Yes, 
Yes, I think fascist <laughs> is a very good description of it. And, you know, as somebody who reads these books, I've, I've got to let you know, I've read Starship Troopers a bunch of times, and it is a well-crafted book. I mean, if you're looking at a book in terms of, like, writing skill, like, normally you think of fascists as clumsy morons, but... uh Heinlein is a very, very clever and very subtle guy, and that book is uh, a science fiction masterpiece. It's just wrong. Well, if you think fascist writers are all clumsy, I take it you've never read Yukio Mishima, but I'm going to stop interrupting now, and I'll let you keep okay. going. <laughs> On the other end, there's a book by a guy named Joe Haldeman, who has written other books, but nobody's read them. Don't worry about it. It's called The Forever War. Uh, Haldeman went to Vietnam and he came back and he experienced the alienation that you would, you would encounter by coming back from a war that everybody hated. And he wrote this book about a soldier who goes through thousands, hundreds of thousands of years fighting an alien enemy and keep returning back from his tour of duty to find that he is more and more divorced from the, uh, the place that he came from. Uh, it's a fascinating and painful book, and we will have an episode about it later in depth. But that is the other end of this spe spectrum. So, like, on the left side, you have war is bad, but, uh, you know, it's, it's necessary. And so, you know, if we're going if, if to be in the world, we might as well be a good at it and enjoy it. That's the Starship Trooper side. The other side is like, duh, obviously it, obviously it sucks. And that's the Haldeman side. Scalzi's Old Man War is definitely in the middle, but it's a lot closer to Starship Troopers than it is to the Forever War. This book um, embraces the necessity, and the feeling you get is that if humanity wasn't the most vicious sets of bastards in creations, we'd have been wiped out long ago. That is very fair, actually. When you put it that way, that is said over and over again in the book. And in the world of this book... Uh, the other alien races are extremely menacing, and some of them are much more advanced technologically than we are, and a lot of them like to eat humans. That's a recurring motif. A lot of these alien races, of which there are like hundreds, like to eat human beings and will even like do TV cooking shows with human bodies, which is revolting, <laughs> right? And like, yeah, you want to you kill these guys. I mean, uh, so yeah, I actually agree with you, Pete. I think that, it, that based on that description, that, that taxonomy, it probably is a little bit closer to Heinlein, and it sounds like Scalzi felt bad about that. But so I, I completely hear you on locating this book in that way. Are you saying, were you saying earlier though that like the now, jumping ahead to 2019 in the, in the almost 15 years since this came out, like what has developed since then in the broader world of sci fi and does it have bearing on these questions? Because you kind of you teased that a little bit, and I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah. About sci fi bringing something new into the world. What is it? Well, um, there are. Um well, actually, let's loop it back to Vox Day. That's probably the way to do it. So um, we, we've sort of talked about uh, an ongoing argument between Vox Day and, and John Scalzi. And I think we've given you an idea of what Scalzi is about. He, is, he, he appears, at least in this first book, to be fundamentally pro the idea of an American empire, though I've never heard him actually say such a thing. Um, he is also, I, I would characterize him as socially liberal, um, at the very least centrist, um, and, and fundamentally likable. Everything I've seen about him is like, I think he'd be a great neighbor. Uh, Vox Day is 
a terrifyingly strange guy. He's one of those people uh, who just sort of feels off. And I know that's not a useful description when, when we're on a podcast. But, I mean, he, uh, he he's anti-SJW in a way that, like, he's made arguments that women should be property. I mean, he's, he's at best, he's alt-right. At worst, just call him an outright Nazi. But he's, he's a far-right figure. We'll say that. Yes, absolutely. And he's a QAnon figure, as long as we're talking about it. Oh, we, fuck. We of course have, he's into that. <laughs> well, yeah. And, I mean, honestly, like, I have respect enough for the intelligence of Vox Day that I don't actually think he's into QAnon. I just think he's a... Uh, he's he's a tremendous grifter. Hey, all like, writers uh, have to be grifters to some extent because you've got to hawk your books all the time. So, you know, no, yep. can't shade him for that. But <laughs> So he's done some things over the years like, um, so th- there's an author I have tremendous respect for that sometime I'm going to pressure you to read, Connor, named Jerry Purnell. And Jerry Purnell, um, in addition to writing some great, books with a partner, Larry Niven, has done a lot of solo books that are, uh, well, it's the best war pornography in the business. It's very much about it battles. It's uh, like if you if you grab a random science fiction fan in the military's footlocker and you flip it over, you'll probably find three Jerry Purnell books. And Jerry Purnell was having some trouble getting published, is my understanding of what's going on. Vox Day made his own publishing house and started publishing Jerry Purnell books. And I got to tell you, man, that is the very definition of mixed feelings for me. I was going to say, I'm surprised to hear that. So you generally like this writer and think he's a fun sort of action-driven sci-fi writer, but he's in league with uh, the forces of darkness. Yes. And, you know, one of the problems I have with science fiction, and it's one of the things that I hope our discussions are going to clarify for me is that you do you need to like the baker that bakes your bread i mean speaking as someone who spent a lot of time around literary writers as part of my upbringing and stuff and it's thought about this a lot i would say generally no and if you try to apply that standard i think one thing we want to say is like we're always happy to we're always going to get into politics when we analyze these books that's inevitable given who we are and how we experience the world we're just that we're that's who that's the kind of guys we are However, I would say this, which is I am not interested in canceling books for the most part. And especially especially if you go to older books, you can always cancel them. We've discussed this with Arthur C. Clarke. It's fun to make fun of the things you can cancel in them. And it's fun to talk about the flaws of their authors and how they don't port over to our values and politics now. Um, Mm -hmm. That's all fair. And it's interesting because it helps us put them in perspective. But I'm not interested in moralizing about art for the most part. And like, like, for instance, what I would say is I, I, I just called Heinlein a fascist. This is mostly a joke. I mean, I want to be clear here, folks. I, I'm not here to like pick 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 which artists are good and which are bad at a moral level. That does not interest me. It's just part of the commentary to say that uh, a kind of gleeful, libidinal embrace of war is a big part of fascism, just historically. So if you're just being descriptive, you would say this dove, you know, this kind of this dovetails with that. Whereas Escalzi, like, I don't, I don't have any moral issues with him or with his this book at all. Really, not not in the way that Pete perhaps does, and we may differ on this, but it's. It's simply that, to be descriptive here, we have to be honest about how this treats the central question of empire that it orbits around. And I'll repeat myself and say, I just don't think this book takes it very seriously. I think it's invested. It's a it's a thoughtful, smart guy who has a very responsible father vibe to him, um, trying to write a fun story and, and taking into account all of the difficult structural things he has to do to do that. And it's a first novel. So again, also, I would say as a writer, 
always be more forgiving at first novels. It's just very hard to figure this out for the first time. And then I think once you've done it for most people, it becomes, you know, you can branch out much more easily from there. But um, he's trying to figure this out. He's trying to sell books. Uh, you know, Scalzi's written about growing up poor, and this is his way of trying to jumpstart a career and take care of his family and all those things. And I would say that he wrote a very entertaining book. And, you know, the, the central flaw of it is simply I don't think he took the questions of empire very seriously. I don't think he was that interested in it. I think he was interested in a kind of trite general treatment of the horrors of war that doesn't go much of anywhere and is wrapped up all together too neatly. Um, and that's, that's the central weakness of the book, arguably. But I'm not out to cancel him or to cancel Heinlein. Vox Day, I guess, is canceled because I don't want to read his shitty writing. Uh, but, you know. As a and I don't think it has anything to do with his writing, why we want him canceled either. Well, no. But can, can we talk about what Scalzi did to Vox Day? Please do. Hit us with it. Okay. Well, Vox, to say he's obsessed with Scalzi is a bit of an understatement. And at one point, Scalzi got so tired of it, he um, he set up a, a pledge drive where he promised to give a certain amount of money every time Vox Day mentioned him on his blog to Planned Parenthood. <laughs> and, I mean, a number of people got in it. It drove tens of thousands of dollars to Planned Parenthood and eventually <laughs> shut Fox That Day is up. great. See, that's great. And, like, Scalzi's good at the internet, man. He's been online for like 20 years. He knows how this is done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for that alone, I don't want to cancel the man. And like, fundamentally, I think I've mentioned this throughout this discussion, but I'm a lot happier with the sequels to these books than I was with this book. And even this book... It's. I think it's fantastically well made, especially for a first novel. The message makes me nervous. Yeah, and I think I would say, you know, we already mentioned this a little bit, but is it fair to say that, like, you are in a period now of reacting towards your own previous feelings about sci-fi and you got to a point in your life where you're reassessing some of the feelings that these books provoked in you earlier on? Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I mean... Bluntly, Connor, you'd have hated my guts six years ago. And can you give me, I, I don't know if that's true. I think you probably were a pretty nice guy still. But, like, what do you mean by that? Well, what, what I mean was I was one of those people who had very left-wing ideals as I was growing up. And as I aged and got more comfortable, um, I got pretty accustomed to the idea that we all had to make compromises. And maybe the world wasn't going the way it should, but at least my 401k was filling up. And maybe if everybody played the game as well as I did, we wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I gave up yeah. on the idea of, of a better world. I mean, that's kind of a, you're not alone in that. That's sort of the liberal professional class ethos generally. And by the way, Pete, I can't blame you. Uh, you came of age during the Reagan era, man. It's not your fault. <sighs> yeah. Well, I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> yeah. I, um, you, you're doing a really good job making up for lost time here. Um, I don't know. Is there anything we've got? We've ranged wide and far here. Do we have to go back to say anything about old man's war? I'm trying to think here. Um, oh, uh, there is one thing that I wanted to say uh, about the actual storytelling as yeah. it pertains to the themes we've been discussing, which is... So Charlie Baxter, who is a friend of my mother's and a very accomplished fiction writer, but also a uh, he, what he's especially known for. One of the things he's known for, Charlie, if you're listening to this, you're known for your fiction writing too. But you're all you also know Charlie that you're known for um, what I would call kind of practitioner theory, by which I mean 
Charlie's someone who's done deep dives into how to write, not just in a cheap way, but in like, what does it really mean to be a writer? How should writers think systematically and intelligently through how writing is done? And one of Charlie's deepest beliefs is, is about something that he calls undoings. And what undoings means in the context of storytelling is that stories at their best really should hinge on the undoing of the character, which is the character does something they absolutely cannot take back. And it could be as minor as uh, betraying your spouse and cheating on s- with someone, or it could be the obvious of killing someone, um, or anything like that. And I would extrapolate from this as an ancillary thing to say, I, I think that what is really, what really makes stories interesting and what, what takes them off of the sort of cynically and narrowly defined tracks that they're put on by the culture industry or whatever other determinants are of the genre and their constraining stories is you need characters to make choices and they have to make choices that could have plausibly gone differently. Um, And, you know, I think what is, what I find unsatisfying about this book is there's a lot of undoings at the level of things this character can't take back. He can't go back to earth he can't take back the fact that he's killing a lot of sentient beings all over the, the galaxy. Um, but none of it, none of it feels like there's, there's, not, there's not a really convincing sense of true agency to any of it, to me. I mean, at least in, at least in key moments. And it's not, it just isn't made very much of. He's allowed to sort of drift through this series of undoings in a way that is charming. But I think when you dig down to it, creates problems. So it's like if you're going to have your undoings, you need, you need to then have, what are the, it's exactly what the character was saying, actually. That's where he gets, the character's getting meta. It's like, there need to be consequences for undoing. There need to be consequences for making choices that you could have made differently, yeah. good or bad. And I think that one thing that frustrates Pete and I is this is a very entertaining, well-made story that doesn't have that weight to it. Is that fair to say, Pete? He is never touched by, by his heroism or his crimes. Like, all of the things that make this man a hero or a villain eventually brush by him. Exactly. I think that the weight of it is supposed to be all of his friends. His friends die, usually not or not in the presence of him, but like he knew that we were going to die, and it's sort of it's 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 brushed aside in the, this weird light way. Where again, I think Scalzi's own um, well earned breezy wit works against him. And yeah, I mean, I would say this is a very worthwhile book to read. I'm going to read more Scalzi. Uh, there's just some things to learn from it about when dealing with weighty themes, you know, how seriously do you have to take the drama of that and how does the construction of the story relate to the seriousness of the themes? And these are scary things for writers to think about because just being able to write a novel that's this well-structured and charming is really, really hard and you don't want to have to go beyond it. But these are unfortunately the burdens you have to assume uh, at some point if you're trying to be a really influential Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, just as being two podcasters doing something like this, uh, we had to stake out a choice. And if eventually Scalzi comes on the show and becomes aware of what I've said about him, I will have to face the consequence of that awkward discussion. Yeah. Uh, John, if you're listening to this, um, <laughs> I'm willing to uh, uh, disown Pete. If you come on the- no, I'm just kidding. Uh, John. <laughs> hey, dude, if it gets a- him on here, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I want to be clear. It's not this is not about hating the writer or moralizing no. against him or even hating the book. It's really just us trying to take seriously what this book represents and how it fits into a broader discourse around Empire and War and sci-fi, which we're going to re- revisit again and again. And frankly, there are certainly writers who have better, I, I think, a better, 
better politics about this and a better, more serious treatment of it who are not as good at writing and not as entertaining as John Scalzi. That's that's something I'd also say. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. It's one of the weird balances of sci-fi is that you, you find authors with tremendous insight and ideas who just have no business having a pen in their hands. And uh, Scalzi is not one of those. I mean, he, he is definitely... Uh, a, a very solid writer and I, I hope he sticks to our genre yeah I think it's probably a good place to end it uh, thanks folks and we've got Joe Haldeman coming up in the near future just to preview our ongoing discussions about Warren Empire 